In context for our Joshua 10 chapter, <clears throat> we were in a place where God had promised a group, uh, some land to a group of people that had been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. And it is important to note that they had already been removed out of the land of Egypt. And that's a really good place to start. Though they had been removed out of the land of Egypt, there was so much more than just not being a slave anymore. That's a really, really difficult thing to wrap your head around when all you've known is slavery for 400 years. And now all of a sudden, the same people who their identity for four generations has just been to basically sit down and shut up and say yes, sir, to live through basically untold, horrifying things to just basically stay alive have now find themselves in a place where they were free. And as that generation dies in the wilderness and the next one prepares to step in, there's so much ground to gain. They have chosen to follow now. They have, it originally had been Moshe or Moses. His name means drawn out. And it moves from there to uh, he hands over that baton before they actually go into this promised land. A man named Joshua, Yehoshua, which is just the Hebrew name for Jesus. And it's important to know as we sort of prepare for this that Though they were now free, as much as they would ever understand freedom, they were not in the place God had for them. God had so much more for them. The problem is, is that the rest of the time, the, this promised land that some people would really like to just kind of compare to heaven, I have a problem with that because there are an awful lot of battles to be fought here and I don't necessarily see those in heaven. The, what we do see though is there is a place, a place of great abundance, a place of fruitfulness as he calls it here, a place of milk and honey. And it's a place of abundant life, that very abundant life that Jesus promised in John 10.10 when he said, listen, I've come to give you life and not just life, but life more abundant. And many of us were aware of this. And this is the problem, is that we know that there's more than just salvation. We know Jesus is more than just for saving. And then we know that Jesus, though being more than saving, we kind of look at this life and we have to look at the rest of the world and we ask, is our life really any better, any different than the world we know, the world we sit around us? Because if it isn't, then how in the world are we telling them that this Jesus really does give us this abundant life he promises? And if we really don't really believe that, then what exactly have we put our faith in? Who exactly have we put our faith in? Somebody that some promises are true and some aren't? And the world's not dumb. I mean, in the end of it, if we're honest, the world isn't looking for any more arguments. They've seen enough arguments. What the world is looking for is evidence. And that's the thing they're not seeing. And, and the thing is, I think we're a little bit more challenged because we realize if we're going to show evidence, we really have to put up and, or shut up. And, and the problem is the church has chosen to shut up instead of actually do what they're, they're called to do, and that's to be the light God had called them to be. So listen, as we step over this Jordan River that Joshua leads us over, Jordan, Jordan, flowing from judgment, literally, and as he stops the flow at Adam, on a man, beside a town called Zeratan, which means their distress. And we see the flow of judgment stopping at a man beside their distress by the name of Joshua or Jesus. When we cross over, we land in a place called Gilgal, and now the battles are to be fought. In our first nine chapters, we've seen battles be fought. We've seen a battle over our faith, and we saw it won. And it was a simple thing. We've used CSI, if you will, as sort of a help. It's a sort of a nomicake on this, and it's 
uh, a mnemonic help. And the idea is simple. The, the C would be to consecrate, and then the S would be to seek God, and the I then would be to initiate. And, and in this case with Jericho, we saw that. They consecrated at Gilgal, and then they sought the Lord and were told to march around the city seven days to shout on the seventh day after seven times. And then the walls were to come down. And as crazy as that sounded, it was, it was completely victorious. It was absolutely so. And God is going to ask us to do crazy, illogical, unscientific things or whatever the case would be. Because if he didn't ask us to do those, then we wouldn't see the God of miracle as he really is. So we have this battle, and much like the world where the battle is over our faith, and that's what John tells us in 1 John 5, that the battle that we have overcome is this victory of our faith. And we see that even with Jericho. But then we saw, instead of going back to Gilgal, that place of consecration, we went straight at Ai, because it was a little place. It was so little, the name of it's only two letters long. And so we'd like to say Ai just to make it sound bigger, but it's Ai. And, and we, they, they didn't even take the full army. They took a look and they surmised it. And they didn't consecrate. We know Achan instead had stolen some stuff. They certainly didn't seek the Lord on it. They just kind of looked and said, you know, we're kind of on a roll. This should be easy. And boom, they, they go in and they get the, the only battle in, in, that we have in the book of Joshua where people die from Israel. And, and it was a horrible failure, even at 36 people's deaths. And if you think that's not many, just be a family member of any one of those 36 people. But they were all avoidable. There was no consecration in the camp. There was no seeking of the Lord. Just quick initiation. And so then they have to get back, reconsecrate. In this case, take care of Achan. Remove all of the things that had been stolen. Reconsecrate. Seek the Lord. And God says, ambush. And as we see ambush, then we see victory. Total victory. And that's like the flesh. We look at our flesh nature. That part that says, serve yourself. And uh, as where the world would tell you, trust yourself, the world says serve your, or the flesh says serve yourself. And in that, what we find is, is that we look at it and go, it's just a little this, it's just a little porn, it's just a little anger, it's just a little gossip, it's just a little bitterness. And we look at it just like I, and then what we find is we get our butts kicked. And the reason we find that is because we really didn't come at it the way God said, which is come at it with everything you've got. And so we saw our second victory. The third one didn't even look like a battle at all. And we said in regards to the spiritual world, and that's with Gibeon, where they came and lied. They were actually only 25 to 30 miles away from them, but they came and what they did is they brought old victuals. If you remember, they brought old bread and old wine. And what they do is they were just basically saying, come make a covenant with us. Come on, be a part of us. And it's interesting because in seeking to become a part of them, what they would find is they'd spend the rest of their time now even defending them. In this chapter, the good news is, is that the, the people they have to defend, uh, they have to defend them from are people that they would have had to fight anyways. That's the good news. But in that now, what you find is, and it happens the same, it's, just like, it's that old identity, it's that old priority system, it's that old lifestyle, it's that old walk, it's that old communion that you kind of get drawn back to somewhere after you said yes to Jesus. What happens somewhere now is... People are like, yeah, you know what? Now that you've tried this Jesus thing and the fat is worn off, why don't you go back? Come on, smoke a little dope with us. Come on, hang out, do a little, you know, let's get drunk again. Let's go do it. And you, and you hated it and you still hate it, but you kind of look back and you kind of feel this temptation because the people are calling themselves your friends. Well, that was Gilgal. That was this Gilead place, this, as we see, Gebeah that we see. So now we're in chapter 10, and what's interesting is, although we've gotten this far and we've seen these three things, the same things when we read in Deuteronomy 6, when God says, you know what I really want from you? 
there was one thing I could have from you. Love me with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And in that same way, those are those three battles. The heart, the battle over your faith, what you feel over what is true. The soul, the spiritual battle, being careful about who you really do make covenants with. Your strength, the flesh, seeing it submitted to God. Well, in all of that, please understand, now all of a sudden, this is the first time where the battle has become offensive against us. In nine chapters now, we've seen that basically Joshua has been the one leading the campaign. But in chapter 10 now, and let me just say it this way, it is either all in or it's all out warfare. Because these victories have happened, because Gibeah has now joined in in this allegiance with Joshua and the people of Israel, it's created quite a stir. So pray with me and let's jump into our chapter. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you will show us why removal of the old occupants is so essential. Thank you that you will show us the occupant's true end. Thank you that the land that you've promised is part of that abundant life that we see here. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that Scripture would burst open and come alive and captivate every one of us right where we're at. That we would get it. I mean, we'd really get it. And that we'd have so much fun in your word that tonight you'd start a revolution in our hearts. So have your way now, I pray. Lord, I pray that you would immerse me in your spirit, that I would disappear and you would be seen. And Lord, that you would come upon me to do through me what I cannot humanly do. Speak to every one of us individually right where we need to hear. And with that, give us ears to hear. Give us supernatural retention. Give us supernatural ability, Lord, to really get it. And with that, Lord, I pray that tonight you would save, transform, revolutionize. Do that which you intend here now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Well, we meet a whole bunch of characters here. Take a look at it with me. Verse, chapter 10, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done with Jericho, its king, and so he had done with Ai and its king, and now it's the inhabitants of Gibeon, how they had made peace with Israel and were among them. Well, they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty. This is our setting. What we're going to find is that this land is land that God has promised them, but there are inhabitants in the land. And there is no sharing here. God has been patient here for over 400 years, and now it is time to take the land. Though it is time to take the land, understand, it will have to be cleared in just like in areas of our life, they will have to be cleared of the old thing for the new to make its home. So the king here, as we read, by the way, the first time Jerusalem is mentioned is right here, and we meet this character, and his name is Adonizedek. Now, perhaps you're familiar with the term Adonai, like Adonai, same term, and it means master or Lord. Zedek, Zedek, means righteousness. So his name means Lord of Righteousness. Great name, or literally, the Lord or the master of my righteousness. Sounds like a great name. 
problem is he's an enemy of God. And what it tells us then in verse 3 is he finds out that these guys are gaining, gaining traction. They're just winning every battle before them. And then these other guys that were obviously great and mighty giant men were actually then making allegiance with him. It says in verse 3, Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to, and this guy, listen to this exciting king's name, Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Yamut, Gephiah, king of Lachish, and Devir, son of Eglon. So this king now gathers four other kings. And he says, come up and help me. Come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon. For it, is, uh, for it, has, been, uh, it has made peace with Joshua and the children of Israel. Therefore, the kings of the Amorites, that's the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Ermut, the king of Achish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up. They and all their armies encamped before Gibeon to make war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Please do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. And Joshua ascended from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. Now, the king says, We've got, they've obviously, these mighty men have now joined with Israel. And that seems scary. They've obviously won everything before that anyways. I'm going to need some backup. I'm not going to be able to do this alone. So he gathers the other mountain kings around him. And he says, you guys, we need to get together. We need to join a coalition and fight Joshua. And actually, the way he's going to do it is actually more so. The problem was Gibeon. And so the idea is quite simple. He's going to make an example of Gibeon. If these five kings take on Gibeon and they destroy Gibeon, well, then nobody else is going to join league then with Israel. Kind of what the mafia does a lot of times. So understand in all of this, Gibeon, in the end of the last chapter, though they had deceived Joshua, the people still got in a covenant with them. They did not deserve Joshua's protection, but Joshua is going to go anyways. And I love this because Joshua really does represent Jesus in this. If I actually told God to defend me every time that I deserved it alone, I wouldn't have any defense at all. But by God's grace, though I don't defend it, my Joshua, Jesus has come to, to protect me as well. But they had become servants, and because they had become servants, they were like, listen, because we serve you, we could really use your protection right now. So Joshua gathers all of his mighty men, that's over half a million people, and then he goes over to battle. Now, that sounds like, I mean, the the whole thing basically, by the time we're done, basically what we're going to find is that obviously a battle takes place, and who wins? Someone wins and someone loses. In the middle of it, there are crazy, crazy miracles. But there's so much more to this story before we even get any farther. Now, God doesn't have to mention things. Now, you know that. I mean, the book's big enough as it is. And if God's going to mention things, there's a purpose to it. And he doesn't have to tell us the names of kings that we wouldn't expect to see in heaven anyways. I mean, it isn't like, okay, there's these kings. He could have just said that the king gathered four other kings from the area and they they went to battle. Why does he spend so much time telling us all of this information? Well, until I realize what their names are. So first we have this king, my, my lord of righteousness, or my master, master of my righteousness. And then we have the second guy, now his name is Choham, and he's the king of Hebron. Choham means whom God moves or impels. The term Hebron means fellowship. My favorite is Piram, because Piram literally means a wild ass. 
And like a donkey is the idea. A crazy wild animal is the idea. But the root word of it all means fruitful. And the idea of it is when something gets so fruitful, and if you've been in one of those places, some of you have come from places where there's a lot of farming going on. You know what happens when the wind blows and there's all of this that is to be harvested and everything's just blowing like crazy. And that's good news, by the way. And he's from this place, interestingly enough, that means rises up or at a great height. We have the name Yafia, and Yafia means shining like glory. Lachish means invincible. That's a good name for a city. You name it invincible. It's better than naming your son Piram. And then we have Devir. Devir means sanctuary. And he's the king of Eglon, and Eglon means calf-like or circle. Okay, what to do, right? Until I start looking at this and I realize what God is setting up here. Here I am seeking to walk with Jesus and I'm following Jesus. He's leading me into the land and he's saying, look at, I want to give you that abundant life, but there's a problem with that abundant life. And that is there, there's actually things taking the place of this space I want to fill with that abundant life. Now, you're probably aware of this. Listen, the devil is no creator. He cannot be a creator. He's an imitator. God is the creator. The enemy is the counterfeiter. And I start to look at this and I recognize even in the Corinthian letters, Paul says, should this surprise us? Does even Satan himself masquerades himself like an angel of light? Should it surprise us that his ministers would look like ministers of righteousness? Righteousness, the same word. I get this. This is the space that was filled before Jesus took it. The reason is, is that there's the wrong king in Jerusalem. And I look at this and I realize these are the five areas God wants to route in my own life to replace with him. The first is, well, what really is my righteousness? Now, now follow me in this for a moment, and then the rest of it will pick up quite nicely. But please hear me. We've got a guy, and his name, his name means, in essence, the master of my righteousness. Now, here's the problem. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but follow me on this. There are only two religions in the world. There is the religion of your righteousness, and there is the religion of God's righteousness. In every other thing but Jesus, you do all the work. Ironic that anyone could call me or any one of us self-righteous because I'm the farthest thing from self-righteous. That would mean I myself made me righteous. But if I were to say, crawl up these steps, kneel on beans, pray this thing 75 times, give this much to charity, make your trip to some place in, 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 uh, you know, in, in uh, Arabia, or make sure that you fast for this period of time, or you make sure you adhere to these five things or these six things, or you, you submit to this, doesn't that sound like your work and not God's? And the whole concept of it is, if you do all of this stuff, and you perform well enough, maybe the thing you're performing for will accept your offering enough and let you move forward. Isn't that kind of how it works? And whether that's if you're nice enough to people, maybe you won't be reincarnated as a cockroach. Although scripture makes really clear in Hebrews 9.27 that it's appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. You only get one shot. This is it. Or whether it's you have to take this trip to Mecca and you have to pray this thing so many times and you have to make sure all of these things are happening. You're still doing all the performing. You are initiating it all. And that's what makes you right. And the Christian church can totally adapt this too, but it's wrong. 
And you know what that is? That's the wrong master of rightness. All righteousness means is being right. How do I make myself right? I'm wrong. How do I make myself right? But in case you didn't know, you are an intentional creation of a God who only makes masterpieces. And he created you for fellowship with him. He didn't create you to serve him. He didn't create you to worship him. He created you to enjoy him. The rest should happen naturally. Supernaturally naturally. And with that, we in our own sinful, selfish, self-centered world have declared war in our hearts with God whether we knew it or not. But God already knew all of that. And because he's infinite in his knowledge, but perfect in his love, he had already had a solution before we needed it. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross so that all of our sins could be properly paid. Just like scripture promised, died on the cross, buried and on the third day rose again and offers us a brand new life. And then we make the choice. Now let me ask you, who did all the performing there? God initiated because real love initiates. It takes the first step. It doesn't wait for the next person. It does it themselves. So understand, this is where it all starts. It all starts with who makes the move and what do you do with it? Do we go with an old righteousness? Or do we go with God's righteousness? But if I don't claim Jesus' righteousness, the rest of this land will never be available to me. Because there's already somebody there. So I move from that to the next one. Look at the next one again with me. Again, the next one is the idea of something being fruitful or something being wild and free. That's what's promised, by the way, when I claim Christ's righteousness. And he's from a place that means to rise up to great heights, a place of honor or dignity. And understand, I recognize that the moment I said yes to Jesus Christ, I was 19 years old. That was so many years ago. And I remember the burdens I carried before that point. I couldn't have listed them and labeled them for you. But I could tell you the moment I said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, my life was transformed. I couldn't even speak. Now, this may be really hard to, for you to believe, but I was really quiet. I hated people. I didn't want anything. The only thing I had to, that I wanted to do with people is fight them. I could, and I never talked. Man, have I changed. And I always had that look on my face that I could hear people sigh relief when they walked past. But the moment I said yes to Jesus and God ripped all of that filth and that weight off of me, I was free. And that was just the beginning of my abundant life. But I could still say, well, there are other freedoms. And we live in a world where even the church is being sold those freedoms. Well, you're free to get drunk. You're free to have sex. You're free to go and do all of these other crazy things. You're free to do those. I mean, Scripture says all things are lawful. But they don't read the rest where it says, but not everything edifies. And if that's what you want, then there's somebody already occupying that land in your heart that should be given to Jesus. Because if it's given to Jesus, you'll see what real freedom is. But if I don't see what real freedom is, I'll never see the third one. I have to be right with Jesus God's righteousness to claim his freedom and to claim his freedom and to be lifted. Well, then I'd see the third one. And the third one is a glory that is invincible or victorious. 
And this is where the rubber starts hitting the road, doesn't it? You see, it isn't just that we feel defeated or invictorious, if you will, in Christ. The problem is our heart is so divided, we have other victories we'd rather win first. Victories that really don't belong in the kingdom of God. So we're busy trying to prove our point and make sure that we're right and being told our own vengeance and claim our own justice. But we want mercy and grace from God, but we won't give it to others because we really want justice there. But you'll never know the victory of Christ if you don't claim His righteousness first and take His freedom second. And where does it end? Interesting, it ends in the sanctuary. Did you notice that that was the last of them? What's interesting is in that first place where God impels, it was fellowship. That's the one in between. That's the connecting point between my right righteousness and all of these other things. And I love the fact that God will move us to proper fellowship. Here's the problem. There's an old fellowship too. Follow me on this and we're almost done with this point so we can move forward. Please hear me though. All fellowship means is you have something in common. Hugo and Deborah have much in common. They're married. They have rings in common. They have a house in common. They have a lot of memories in common. Now it's interesting because Hugo's French, although that's debatable, but Deborah's definitely Italian. They'll have more in common probably in another five years where they'll probably claim Hugo is absolutely Italian by that point. They do have that in common. But let me tell you what they also have in common. They have sin in common. They're human, so they have human things in common. You know what that means? That if a sickness enters the house, they both might get it. The flu, whatever. Have you ever had one of those times yet where you and your wife were both really, really, really sick together? It's the weirdest unbonding bonding moment, you know? You each get your own bucket. Anyways. They also have, most importantly, they have Jesus in common. And because they have Jesus in common, all of the other things can be overridden. Every human being is a sinner. In this room, if we had all said yes to Jesus, though we all have Jesus in common, we still all have sin in common too. We also probably have some other things in common as well. We all have a tendency to coagulate with people who have a similar nature or interest. We might be quick to grab a hold of the people that are more athletic like ourselves or artistic like ourselves or whatever the case, and that'll be our crew. And it becomes very myopic, very small and very limited in our color sense. Because that's what we did with an old fellowship. That's how we did it before. And it is really hard as Christians to develop how it is that we could actually make sure that Jesus is the most fundamental thing and prominent thing we have in common. So you watch people and they're like three great Christian guys, but you put them together and all you get is trouble. And you wonder how that happened. I don't know. They're like individually, they're great Christian guys. Then you stick them together and they're in fistfights with each other and all kinds of crazy things break out. Could it be because they never really learned how to have Christ's fellowship? So they fellowshiped in the areas that were more natural. Like sin. You watch the girl and she's with the guy and he's Christian and she's Christian and they so they say and but they keep winding up in very, very compromising places and they don't know how it happened. It happened because they never really decided consciously and concertedly that they were going to fellowship and make Jesus the one thing that that puts them together.
And what I love about our church is actually that. We're very diverse in regards to our nations, diverse in our ages, diverse in our looks. Because really the one thing that we have in common is the most important thing, and that's Jesus. So follow me. This is how it works. Christ, the proper righteousness, for the proper righteousness, the old righteousness has to be booted out. For proper fellowship, the old fellowship has to be booted out. For proper fruitfulness, the proper raising up and exaltation, well, then the old exaltation, the things that used to be important have to be booted out. For proper glory and for proper victory, well, then the old battles that we think we should be fighting have to die. Have to be booted out so that we can finally find true sanctuary. And understand what sanctuary is, a place of great peace and rest. Do you have that? Are you running from one place to another, restless, just trying to stop the madness in your heart and head? Well, you know what happens? Is we have old sanctuaries. The bottle, the needle, they're old sanctuaries. For me, fighting was an old sanctuary. Strange as it was, it was its own release. I don't miss it at all. And I guarantee you, those that were near me don't either. But you watch somebody, it gets a little rough and you hit the bottle. It gets a little rough and you hit the strip clubs. It gets a little rough and you you know what it is. And, and even for some, it's just, you know, I'm just going to watch all 38 Star Wars movies in a row until my eyes bleed and I can quote them by verse. And I'm not telling you that Star Wars in and of itself is sinful, but I'm telling you if you waste that much time, you can't possibly look back and go, boy, am I glad we did that. Three days straight. Xbox Fest, whatever the case. And again, I'm not here to condemn. I'm not judging. But when you realize, man, someday we're going to stand before God and I guarantee you, you will not say to him, God, could you come back another day? I'm almost at level 23. So these kings have gathered together and God has actually done him a favor. If you are not all in, you will find all out warfare. Because they're gathered together to fight, whether you like it or not. And they're going, to fight, they're going to fight Gibeah. And if they actually gather and win over Gibeon, well, you know what's going to happen. You're next. Well, they'll go after your covenanted relationships. And once the relationships go down, you're next. So verse 6. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua the camp of Gilgal. Again, that's the place of consecration. And they said, don't forsake your servants. Come to us quickly, save us and help us for the kings of Amor- from the, for all of the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war who were with him, he and his mighty men of war. Now let's understand, he's got to go 25, 30 miles and he's got to rise up 4,000 feet in elevation. This is quite a hike. And it tells us that they do this all night in verse 9. And then they're going to... They're going to fight for much longer than a day. Well, it's the longest day in history. But verse 8 is the one verse that the rest of the chapter hinges on. Remember the CSI? We consecrate, then we seek the Lord. Well, God has now sought them out. And the Lord said to Joshua, Don't fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Exactly how much victory has God promised Joshua here? How much? All total, absolute victory. Have you noticed that? 
Not just partial victory. It isn't like, well, you're going to win this thing. It's going to be rough. You're going to kind of come out with some bumps and scrapes. He's like, you are going to be absolutely victorious. Verse 9 says, Joshua, therefore. And let me ask you this, beloved, as we move forward. When you hear God's word, do you grab a hold of it for the truth that it is? Or do you think somehow when God makes promises that they're more for other people than you? Do you think somewhere, well, surely the pastor is going to cash in on those. He's probably the Lord's favorite. But you, on the other hand, you're still struggling with something. And if clearly I never do because I'm a pastor. Is that how that works? You know, well, clearly you don't know pastors very well. And in all of that is, that, is that where we're at? We're kind of like, well, I know that God promised abundant life, but there's probably like a very small group of people that really get abundant life. And then the rest of us kind of get life. You know, it's not really death. It's not just existence. We get a little bit more than the average person. And so what are we kind of like, how in the world does that work? It's sort of like, you know what? Okay, you get to go on the kiddie rides, but you don't get any of the thrill ones. Beloved, there is nothing that the Lord has promised me that he hasn't promised you in regards to his victories. There's nothing about life that God has promised me that he hasn't promised you other than the way we work out the very things that he's called us individually to be. Why should you be any less victorious? Why should you be any less spirit-filled? Why should you be any... I hear people telling me those kind of crazy things. Well, you're the pastor, so you get an extra measure of the spirit. Funny, it tells us in scripture God doesn't give his spirit by measure. Do you know what that means? It means you can't have, you, I can't have more than you. I accept maybe the fact that I look at someone like Naomi and I'm like twice her size, so maybe I can get, I don't know, but you get it. The issue is not how much of me has, or how, how much of the Holy Spirit I have, because he's a he. The issue is how much of me does he have? And if it's like, I want to be totally filled with, with God's Spirit, well, then I want to be totally empty of my own thing, because there won't be room for both. That's the point here. And when God says, Joshua, you've got this thing nailed and it's total victory. You really want right fellowship? Then let's get you right fellowship. You really want total freedom? Then let's get you real freedom. You really want to celebrate and be fruitful? Then let's be fruitful together. You really want that? Then let's get real fruitfulness. You want to be invincible? I'll make you invincible. But for my battles, Joshua, and in the end of it all, you really want right sanctuary? Oh, I'm going to give it to you. And I'm not just going to give you a little bit. I'm going to give it to you all. Not a single bit of this will stand if you are willing to clean it out for me to fill it. And what we're going to find is God will even do the work if we're willing to march. So, we, so what happens is a result of that verse 9 again, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly. They marched all night from Gilgal. So it was a 25, 30 mile march. It was 400 4,000 feet up from where they were. And it says, The Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Huram, and struck them down as far as Atzika and Makeda. Now, what do you do, right? Well, now we have other places. And what we read, by the way, it tells us that the Lord routed them before Israel. God did the work. What we're going to find is God actually stoned them with hailstones. He's going to tell us here in a moment that it tells us in verse 11. We'll look at it with me so you know I'm not making it up. It happened that as they fled before Israel, they were on the descent of Beth Huron, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Atzikah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. 
That doesn't mean the children of Israel didn't kill with the sword. What it meant, though, was that the victory really came from God. And interesting, because when God stones, when there is someone being stoned, it's for blasphemy. Interesting, because in, in Exodus 9, where hail was shown, it was the seventh of the ten plagues. It was the first one where Pharaoh finally said, you know what, I'm wrong. I'm actually wrong. I'm a sinner. Huh. But unfortunately, he will recant. In verse 10, he killed him, he slaughtered him. It says, by the way, there was along the road that went to Bet Choran. Bet means house. Like Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Bethlehem means house of bread. Bet Choran means the house of hollowness, emptiness. It says, if, as far as the area of Atzikhan, Atzikhan means fenced in, dug over. And this is and mechada. Mechada means marked, tattooed, speckled. And it's what you do for goats when they're yours. So I have these three terms. Listen to this. The house of emptiness or hollowness, fenced in, and then marked. Yeah. Those are the names of the towns. Yeah. Now follow this. In the beginning, these are the things you want to be a part of. Someone will say, oh, come on, be part of our old club. Come on, hang out with the old boys. You know? And if in the beginning, because we have this old way that we want to be right with God, and we have this old way of what old fellowship looks like, and we have this old fruitfulness and this old victory and these old things that we kind of keep clinging to, we don't see it for what it really is. And what it really is, is a hollow house of fenced-in sheep or, or lamb or goats. And you look and you realize, oh my goodness, I thought you guys were the free ones. Because you were always out causing the trouble. You were always out doing the crazy things. And you could do whatever you wanted, whatever you wanted. And all of a sudden, as I start following Jesus, I see them in a very different light. And I look down and I go, oh my goodness. You know what they really are? They're trapped by the very house of, of emptiness. And until I see that, I want to be like them. But the last thing in the world I want to do when I see them for who they really are is want to be like them or be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of that tragedy, that, that horrible bondage, because I came from that. The crazy part is I wanted out of that, and then I look back at that thing, and I'm thinking, oh man, I want to be a part of that. I, I, I needed to be rescued from that. I called out to be rescued from that. And now I look back at that. And here's the thing, is it's an all-out war now, and that all-out war is this whole battle strangely enough, because of something that we were careless in in the last chapter, but because we kept our word, these were battles we were going to fight anyways. We just didn't realize we were going to have to do them now. And for some of you, you're kind of like, you know, you're a new Christian. And as a new Christian, you're kind of dealing with, you're kind of figuring it out. And you're going, you know, well, what's my next step? Well, let me just tell you, let me tell you what your next step is. It's the next step every one of us take. And that's that God's going to keep digging in and removing the old gunk and muck and nastiness and filling it with life. I mean, real, abundant life. And you will want to be in fellowship and you will find joy in your prayers and you'll find victory and this word will burst open for you and you'll find scripture coming out of your mouth and you'll go, wow, what was that? Some of you are already experiencing it. Do you remember the first time you opened your mouth and scripture came out and you thought that was the coolest thing that ever happened? Of all the fights I'd been in or any of the other things, I remember the first time I really wanted to help somebody that was in trouble. And I opened my mouth and scripture came out and I had never been more confident that what was being said was exactly what they needed to hear. I thought, oh, that was cool. 
I love the fact that at that moment you don't feel like you've just done God a favor. You just realize you got used by God. And I love that. And I goes, you want more of that? I'm like, yeah. Well, then I'm going to dig some more out of you. Uh, that doesn't sound so fun. That's okay. Do you trust me? Yeah, okay. And then I look back at the very thing that I thought was so cool, so awesome, and it was a hollow house. Fenced in animals. And here I am, the free one. You know, when the enemy came at Eve, do you remember what he said? Has the... As God said, he never calls him Lord, by the way, that's important to note. Has God said that you shall not eat of every tree in this garden? Don't you realize, Christians, beloved, that's what you're going to hear. Oh, isn't God the party pooper? Isn't he the one that takes away all your rights? Isn't he the one that tells you you can't do anything you want to do? Actually, he's the one who healed me and made me right, set me free. You don't see how fenced in you are. And he's like, oh, you can't evolve the trees? Funny. I could eat of all the trees but one. You only have one tree to hang out at. I've got the rest of the garden. And don't lose that perspective. Beloved, as we go to prayer, let me ask you, are you looking at the world as if that's where freedom is? Jesus says, you know, if you do what I say, you'll be my disciple. And if you, do, if, you, if you become my disciple, you'll, you'll actually know the truth. And if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. I mean, we love to claim that last part, but we don't like the parts that walk up to it. Because it's not the Word that set us free. It's the Lord that set us free. The Word was His tool. Tonight in this room, maybe you are in battles. Maybe you're in a place right now where you feel like it's an all-out battle and there's emotions and there's anger and there's confusion and there's, there's things you just don't get and you're just trying to kind of scrape up some form of dignity and understanding in all of this. And somehow in it, you're going, you know, I don't understand. I'm trying to walk with the Lord now. Why these battles? Because these battles are to get you more ground. Every one of these battles are to evict from our own lives things that don't belong there anymore including our false sense of righteousness, so that He can replace it with the real deal. So as we go to prayer, I want to pray for that very thing in all of our lives that God will give us the courage and the insight to understand that. But also, if you've never accepted this gift of Jesus tonight, I would be foolish not to offer that to you. My God, again, didn't ask for you to perform. He asked for you to accept, to receive, to believe. That's all. He did the work. He paid the price. And the only reason that Jesus was qualified is because he never sinned. It's God in the flesh. And because he's God in the flesh, that disqualifies every other person who's just man in the flesh. Who has his own sin to pay for. Jesus had none of his own to pay for, and that's why he could pay for others, including yours and mine. But he also volunteered to do it. And nobody else did. Aren't you thankful that the one person who volunteered was the one person who was actually right to do it? I mean, wouldn't it have been awful? I mean, pardon me for saying, wouldn't it be awful if Buddha volunteered and then he found out that he was disqualified because he was a sinner himself? And you're like, dang it. 
nice idea, wrong guy. But the only one qualified is the one who volunteered. And if he was really willing to pay your bill, to die on the cross for you and then raise again on the third day, to offer you new life, why would we say no to that? What do you think you have that you would be giving up? Insanity? Destruction? Your world is becoming a black hole and you know it. It is time to let Jesus transform you. And that's simply, all he's asking is your permission. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. I thank you, Lord, as we begin this chapter. How clearly, Lord, as we say yes to you and choose to follow you, there will be battles to be fought. We know that Paul told Timothy that all desire, all who desire to live godly in you will be persecuted. Not just all those who intend to, or sorry, all those who accomplish it, but even at the very point of intending to, there will be opposition. And you told us, Jesus, that in the world we will have tribulation, but then you told us, cheer up, you've overcome the world. This very world that will find tribulation and is the one you've overcome. And I pray right now, Lord, for the very things we, the, the, the struggles within us. Our old values, our old challenges, those things that kind of keep creeping up and haunting us. I pray, Lord, we could let them go tonight. Recognizing you are not a God of nots, you're a God of instead of, and for everything you will remove, you will replace with better. So tonight, Lord, may we take our hands off of the things that aren't rightly ours anymore. And let you dig them out and replace them. But here in this room, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree with this prayer by the end, I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Yeah, you know what? If that's really true, I want it. I say yes, so be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven... Yes, I am a sinner. I'm not lying. We, we, we both know this. Then because you so love me, but you're also a righteous judge, my sins have to be punished. But because you love me so much, you actually already had a plan to pay for that without me having to spend eternity away from you. And when you sent Jesus to die on that cross, I was on your mind. And when he died on that cross, all of my punishment was properly inflicted. And just like scripture promised, on the third day he rose again. So that I could have a new life. No longer under the tyranny of my sin. No longer under the old mastery of me just thinking if I did enough things, did them nicely, that would be okay. A nice enough person. I put my trust in what Jesus did on the cross as for my full payment. And when he rose again, he has a right to be the Lord of my life. So I hand my life over and say, no, make my life yours. Reinvent me. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, 
I ask you to say, Amen.